They're all, we're not working through a book or a single passage for this series. All of them are standalone ideas and truths. And I would really encourage you, every week in the study notes, the, the last thing in the study note is memorize this verse this week. And I would, I'd strongly encourage you to take these verses that we're working on over the next few weeks and commit them to memory. They are, they are good foundational passages for us to use. So how did, the, how did the last stanza of the song go? If, um, if the whole realm of nature were mine, it would be a gift far too small. I'm not saying this right. It'd be, a, it'd be an offering far too small, a love so divine, so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. That's what we're talking about today. Romans 12, 1 and 2, we'll, we'll read it in just a moment. What does it mean to be a living sacrifice in light of all that God has done for us? And the, and the, the author composed it just exactly right. If the whole realm of nature were mine, it'd be an offering far too small. So it requires my life as an offering back to God. Let's, let's talk about that. I, I'm no sculptor. The art of sculpting from a solid rock looks like an amazing blend of, of engineering and creativity and artistry to me. And it's, it's just amazing to see a sculpture that is, that is so finely done and so detailed. My, my curiosity and my intrigue with, with sculpting is, is peaked when I, I see the awe-inspiring works of Michelangelo and who, who isn't just awed by what he's done. And you'll see some images on the screen of, of, of Michelangelo's. Michelangelo had a unique approach and concept of, of carving and chiseling and sculpting. He believed that the sculptor was a tool of God, not, not simply creating, but he believed that the sculptor was revealing the powerful figures already contained in the marble. His job was to bring them out. You see, Michelangelo saw his task not only as to chip away the excess stone, but to reveal the image that's already contained within. And unlike most sculptors, from what I understand, who would prepare a plaster cast model of the sculpture they, they tried to recreate, and then they would mark up their block of marble to know exactly where to chip, Michelangelo mostly worked freehand. He started from the front of the statue and worked his way to the back without a plan. One author described his work as, as if they emerged from the marble as though surfacing from a pool of water. Listen to this. The method for sculpting, one of the methods I understand that I've read about is that you would take a figure of wax and you would lay it in a, in a vessel of water and then you would gradually bring the sculpture, the, the statue up, or whatever you'd like to imitate, gradually bring it up, and you would notice the different things that came out of the water, which ones come out first, and that's where you would start with your sculpting. One author described Michelangelo's work as though he was surfacing a statue, an image from the stone. Strangely enough, among his works, Michelangelo is also famous for pieces that he didn't actually complete. Four of the unfinished pieces are called the prisoners or the slaves. You might have heard about this. I think I have some images 
up there. They're not finished. These unfinished works not only reveal how the artist worked, but they also point to the idea that the work is trying to free itself from the stone. Each image is, is shown in not only strong physical strength and beauty, but with a, there's a sense of power in each image, and there's a sense of motion, a motion to escape from the stone that holds it in. Some speculate that he actually left these works unfinished in order to illustrate his philosophy and his method of sculpting. Michelangelo saw his work, saw his sculpting as the work of God. He was simply joining the work of transforming a block of marble into the image that God had already intended it to be. Michelangelo and his prisoners provide an excellent example to us of the work that God is doing in our own lives. I'm not sure that God is bringing out what's already there. That would indicate that we have something to offer in this work. But God is in the business of turning death into life. He's in the business of turning hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. He's in the business of transforming the hearts of rebels into the hearts of worshipers. He's in the business of transforming sinners into saints. So as we dive deeper in what it means to follow Christ, we come to the aspect of transformation. What does it mean? What is God doing in our life? It's, it's true that God saved us by his grace and his mercy. It's also true that we bring nothing to that work. We, as, we may as well be a stone we may, be a, we may as well be a chunk of marble with no power to bring life, to heal, or to contribute to the master's work. But the moment, the moment we enter into his grace, the moment we enter into Christ's death and his resurrection, the moment we enter into his salvation bought for us, we are given the Holy Spirit at the very same moment who immediately begins the work of chiseling away the things that don't belong to God. And he immediately begins to do the work of bringing out the things that do belong to God. And in the process, the new creation that Christ has birthed in salvation begins to transform. The theological term for this is sanctification. It's simply the Holy Spirit-led process in our lives of transforming from the old into the new, from the sinful self into the, the new creation, the new creation that God is bringing out in us. In that sense, we're like Michelangelo's prisoners being set free. And as Scripture tells us, from being set free from the law of sin and death to the law of the Spirit in Christ Jesus. So our text for today, Romans 12, 1 and 2, highlights this, this dynamic, this critical dynamic in the life of a believer, those who would follow Christ. So let me read, turn with me if you would to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, that's where we'll camp today. Paul writes this, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good 
and acceptable and perfect. Amen. So let's, let's dig deeper into this, this truth today, this truth of transformation, this transforming work that God is at work is, is about in our lives. The first, the first idea that, that I come away with is that we need to put ourselves on the altar. The first word that catches our attention, verse 1, is therefore. So whenever we see that word, it refers back to something that's already been said, already been explained, already been clarified, already been discussed. As Paul began this letter to the church in Rome, he explained that he longed to see them. He explained in, ver- in chapter 1, verse 11, he explained that he longed to impart some spiritual gift to them, that they, might, that they might be encouraged, that they might grow up in Christ. He wanted to share some spiritual gift with them. And so he gave them, before he even got there to Rome, he gave them the book of Romans. He gave them this letter. What a gift. What a gift, the book of Romans. This letter contains the clearest and the fullest understanding of the gospel and its implications. Romans is one of the early books of the New Testament that was written. And what's, if you think about the the trajectory of the church and you think about how the gospel went out, one of the first things that needed to happen was the gospel needed to be clarified. The gospel needed to be written down. It needed to be explained. It needed to be thoroughly detailed out so that people would understand what the true gospel is. And that's the book of Romans. What a gift Paul gave to them. He discusses topics such as the effect of sin on the world. He talks about the rebellion uh, and sin against God. He talks about God's plan for salvation. He talks about the history of salvation throughout Scripture. Most notably, he talks about Abraham. He clarifies the work of Christ on the cross. He, He talks about the substitutionary death that Jesus took on our behalf. He took up our sin and our death in propitiation, taking our place and paying the price for us. He explains how God's righteousness was revealed in Christ. And in chapter 6, he talks about our baptism, our union with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. In chapter 8, he almost explodes with praise as he considers all that God has done for us as followers of Christ. And in chapters 9 and 11, he goes into great detail on the rebellion, the rejection, and the salvation of the Jews. So by the time Paul gets to the end of chapter 11, And he thinks about this whole panorama, this whole landscape of the gospel. And he thinks about all that God has done and the amazing gift of the gospel. He's ready to explode in worship once again. So in order to understand verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12, we need to go back into chapter 11 a little bit. Because this is the fulcrum. This is where Paul turns from doctrine and understanding the gospel and he, and he turns to the practical application of the gospel in chapter 12 and, and, and on. But listen to how he concludes the first 11 chapters of Romans. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things... To him be glory forever. Amen. I don't know if I can say that loud enough or if I can say it with enough passion and enthusiasm for the Apostle Paul as he, as he sits on the mountaintop of, of Romans and the gospel and he looks out on the whole panorama of it and he says, wow, what God has done for us. 
what God has done for us. You see, the natural response to the gospel, the natural response to understanding everything that God has done for us is what? It's worship. So Paul continues with the practical application for us. In, in, light, of, in light of the fullness and the truth of the gospel, we need to respond in worship. So that's the thought that's on his mind as, he's, as he turns the corner and starts chapter 12. They say the book of Romans is akin to the highest mountain range in the world with all of its theological truths. And if, if all of the Bible is, is a series of mountaintops, Romans is the highest peak. And they say Romans is at the top of the highest peak. And they say Romans chapter 8, and our identity in Christ is the peak of that mountain. So I say again, as Paul stands at the peak of these truths, gazes out on the plan of God, the gospel of God, the people of God, he explodes in worship. So if you are in Christ, if you have given your life over to the lordship of Jesus Christ, if you have taken in his salvation, his free gift of salvation, then I am convinced, hello, every one of us have had a moment like the Apostle Paul. We've all had a similar moment. Maybe it was, it was the moment that you realized the weight of your sin. Maybe it was the moment that under the weight of that sin, you understood your need for a Savior. Maybe it was then that the, the, the face of Jesus Christ and the truth of Jesus Christ came into focus. Maybe it was the moment that some specific truth of the gospel just jumped off the page to you and, and something that you hadn't understood before all of a sudden became clear as a bell. Maybe that was the moment. Maybe it was a time when you saw God move in a powerful way. You see, we've all had those moments. As followers of Christ, hopefully it's not limited to one moment, but it's a lifetime of God moments where God shows us who he is, what he's doing, the profound nature of his truth. And our response in those moments is worship. I mentioned last week that our daughter and son-in-law have been at their alma mater, their high school alma mater, uh, this week in Germany at the Black Forest Academy. It's a school for missionary kids. Our, our son-in-law has been speaking at their spiritual emphasis week. I, I, I believe they had eight sessions. He, he gave eight different messages this week. All for the missionary kids. And the report is that several of the students have given their lives to Christ as a result of hearing the messages this week. See, I don't know what it went into their decisions but I know this, that somehow the Holy Spirit impressed on their hearts the clarity of the gospel. I know this, that something tripped inside of them where the Holy Spirit said, this is what I'm trying to tell you. And it came off the page, and they ran to the front. The response was to call on Jesus. The response is to worship Jesus. So the question this morning is, what does that worship look like? Look at verse 1 again. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. There it is, therefore. In light of this, I appeal to you, in light of all this, brothers, by the mercies of God, again, looking at the panorama of the gospel, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What does it mean 
to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. As I sum all of this idea up, as I think about it myself, the, the thought that comes to my mind is you, you just need to throw yourself on the altar. Get on up there and say, I'm yours, Lord. Do with me as you will. Lead me where you will. So let's take this idea apart. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present. Let's stop right there for a moment. The backdrop of the gospel is the Old Testament and the animal sacrifice system. Until Christ came and died on the cross and paid the penalty for our sin, and, and that sacrifice was no longer necessary, worshipers brought sacrifices to the temple on, on, on their own behalf. They would present their offerings to the priests for sacrifice in the temple. What does it mean to present ourselves? I, I, th I think about it here in the church. It's when a family presents their child to the congregation to be dedicated to Christ. They present their child back to Christ and dedicate him or her to God's purposes. We just saw a couple of weeks ago where four young people um, gathered here at Valley Free for the purpose of being baptized. They presented themselves for baptism. They stood there and they said, I will recognize Jesus as my Lord and Savior. In both of those ceremonies, those involved are presented to God. They're brought forward and presented to God. We've all been to weddings where we've seen the bride walk down the aisle in all of her beauty and splendor on that, on that wonderful day. We've seen her walk down the aisle. We've seen her being presented to her husband. Maybe it's her father who gave her away and presented her to her soon-to-be husband. Presented. In the same way, we present ourselves to Christ unreservedly and wholeheartedly for his worship, for his purposes. We present ourselves to him. Paul explains it in six, chapter 6, verse 13. Look, look, if you will, turn, turn a few pages to the left. Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 is all about this transformation. Paul says in verse 12, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Listen to this, verse 13. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments in righteousness. There's the idea. Which, which way are we going to present ourselves to unrighteousness or to righteousness, to, to God or to the world, to God or to sin? Which, which way will we present ourselves? To whom will we present ourselves? We have a choice to present ourselves to sin or to God. How will we be used? To whom or to what will we present ourselves? And then Paul goes on, he says, to present your bodies. Let's stop right there. Your body, what is, what's Paul trying to say there? Why does Paul say we need to present our bodies? There are several ideas, several aspects that go into this idea, I believe. Look at, look at 1 Corinthians, just a few pages to the right. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Again, verse 13. I'm sorry, verse 19. Paul says this, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, 
whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Present yourselves to God in your body. That whole section in chapter 6 is all about sexual immorality and the body is set apart for God, God's purposes. Paul tells us the body is the temple of the Spirit. The whole context of that idea is to yield ourselves to Christ, to yield our whole bodies, ourselves, to God and not to the world or our own passions. You see, we've been bought with a price and our bodies now belong to God. Another way to see this is the, is the fact that the body symbolizes the totality of our beings. The body is the sum of all our parts. In the same way it reflects our, our hands, our feet, our head, our heart, etc., it also, it also indicates every aspect of our lives. Every thought, every passion, every physical part of our bodies, everything, the totality of our life goes up on the altar as we offer our bodies. The body reflects our thoughts, our desires, our impulses, our drives. One of the driving forces of the day is the idea that my own happiness, that my own impulses are what drive my life. No matter how sinful, no matter how destructive or contrary a choice may be, as long as it's something I want, I should have it, and you need to respect me for it. Right? Am I saying that right? Just this week I saw a, a headline, and I just had to click it on. The, click, the headline was, Man Marries Himself in San Francisco. And as far as I know, it's a true story. It was, it was, it was on the interweb, so it must be true. The guy is confused in his gender, and he was unhappy, so he decided to do something to validate himself. So he, track with me on this, he borrowed $20,000, $20,000 to host a wedding where he would marry himself. And his friends came from all across the country to San Francisco to come to this wedding where he married himself. And it went into detail that we don't need to go into this morning. But that highlights the idea that, that, that my impulses, the things that I think are good, are, are, are what drives me. And God says, you know what? In, in, when I, you lay up your whole body on the altar, it means you lay up every thought, you lay up every aspect of your life, every desire, every part of your life, you lay it up on the altar for God to examine it in light of his truth and his wisdom and his grace. But instead, our culture and, and maybe we think that we need to follow our own impulses. Finally, the body signifies that the work that God is, signifies the work that God is doing in me. By the same token, it can reflect the ungodliness in my heart as well. Whatever is going on in my heart finds its way out in my physical body or my, my, my being, my presence. Jesus explained it like this in Luke chapter 6, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. You see, what's going on in here, what's going on in the, 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 the power center of my life, my heart, is what comes out of my mouth, is what comes out in my physical body. 
And so Paul says you need to lay your body on the altar to present your body as a living sacrifice. And so Paul says, he goes on to say, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. What does a living sacrifice mean? As we consider the idea of a sacrifice, both in Judaism and in pagan practices, an offering would give its life in the sacrifice. As Paul describes our worship, our sacrifice, it's, it's with all of our life. But it's not dead. The, the, the living sacrifice that he's talking about is active. It's, it's involved. It's, it's engaged. It's ongoing. The sacrifice is not only of my whole life, but it's of my participation, my engagement in his work and his purpose, my collaboration with whatever he's doing, my yielding to him. That's a living sacrifice. Listen to these, these passages of Scripture. Mark chapter 12, verse 33. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Ephesians chapter 5 says, Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. 1 Peter chapter 2 says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. <coughs> that idea of a holy priesthood just, to me, brings about a picture, an image of the priests working in the temple, and hundreds, maybe more, of priests all busy offering sacrifices and doing the work of the temple. It's an ongoing thing. It's a continual offering up of sacrifices. And finally, in Hebrews chapter 13, the author says this, through him then let us continually, there's the word, continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. You see, we're called to throw ourselves on the altar to worship God for all that he has done in us and for us. Our response of worship is to join in his work in our lives, to participate with God in all that he has for us. That is the doorway into the transformation that Christ has for us. And then Paul goes on, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Let's just stop right there. Don't be conformed. And I put a subtitle on there, Abandon the World's Image, because it's all image. It's all exterior. See, Paul is getting really practical here with our transformation. We are not to be conformed to the world. To be conformed means to model ourselves. It means to model ourselves after something, to take the form of something. It, it implies compliance with an outside influence, with, with outside rules, with outside pressure. It means I, I conform, I comply with whatever somebody imposes on me. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul tells us that we've all walked in rebellion and sin, that we have followed the world, the devil, and our own disobedient nature. Between those three things, we have followed after those things that don't belong to God in our rebellion. The battle is something that we have come from, and I think we can all attest that the battle is something that we engage in continually. 
when we think of ourselves, we recognize that we come to Christ with all kinds of baggage. Perhaps we tried to throw it off, but we, we just can't. Perhaps our, our hurts, our habits, our hang-ups have always driven our behavior. See, Paul tells us to leave it all behind, to leave it at the cross. And part of this living sacrifice, part of this not being conformed to the world is recognizing that we have attitudes, we have habits, we have issues that stand in the way of our faith and our transformation, the work that God is doing. A, a, a living sacrifice means that I'm continually laying these things at the cross for the work of Christ. Paul goes on to say in Ephesians chapter 2 that the, the world and, and, and the devil are, are both trying to win the battles for our minds, for our loyalty. Perhaps you've heard the phrase, it's a battle for the hearts and minds. Fill in the blank. You see, Satan is always trying to steer our minds and our passions away from God. I like to say that we need to capture the imagination of people for Christ. Satan is all about capturing, the world is all about capturing the imagination of the world for their ways, for their pleasures. Even today, even this afternoon, I think at 1 o'clock or 1.30, there's a rally at the state capitol. How many have heard about the rally at the state capitol today? Nobody. We need to know this. We need to know this. Our state government and all their, all their wisdom is voting on a curriculum for sex education that's to be mandated across our state. And if you looked at this curriculum that, that, they are, that they are recommending and that they're going to be voting on soon, well, I haven't seen the images myself because you can't post them on the internet. They're pornographic. You can't show them on the TV news at night because they're pornographic. But somehow, some special interest groups have decided that it's okay to show the pornography to our 10-year-old kids and maybe younger. And I read, I read some articles on this curriculum, and it's, it's, it's in other states, and it's, it's, it, it, it's, uh, it's gone through the UN. And the agenda behind it, it's not just the pornography, but the agenda behind it will take your breath away for the godlessness of it. That's why there's a rally at the state capitol today to urge our legislators to please not impose this in all our schools across the state. You see, you see, the world is seeking at younger and younger ages to seize the hearts and the minds of our kids. And Paul says that part of the transformation of us is to not be conformed to the world. I'm, I'm embarrassed to say this, but I have a confession to make. And that I watched NBC News last night. I don't know what possessed me. Nearly every story that they put on the news had some sort of an agenda. They were able to weave in their agenda into the most basic of news events. And as I watched, and just about every story, they left out key truths. They misrepresented what was actually happened. They assigned motives. They determined what caused something to happen. 
You see, the world is desperately trying to capture your mind and your heart with their agenda. And it is often contrary, not all the time, but often contrary to God and his ways. Paul tells us, don't be conformed to the world. Don't let ourselves become entangled with the ways of the world or our sinful nature. So let's, let's go on to the good news. Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. You see, it's a simple command. Be transformed. To be conformed, which he's, he's, he's teaching against, is to be conformed is an outward, is an exterior submission to something. To be transformed is an inner working, a whole life makeover. It's not simply non-conforming to the world. Transformation is something that takes place in the depths of my heart. And it works its way out into my life, my, my body, if you will. It works its way out into everything I do. This, this transformation now becomes my impulse, now becomes my motive, now becomes my direction, my directive. That's transformation. It's not conforming to something. It's not simply just obeying the rules. It's allowing Christ to actually work over my heart. And that's why Christ said we need to be born again because it all starts right there in my heart. Be transformed. It's something that takes place in the depth of my heart. There's another word, there's another use of this word. It's, it's not used much in the New Testament, but there's another use of the word, and that word is transfiguration. It occurs in the story of Christ along with Peter, James, and John, who, who Jesus invited to go up to the mountain to meet with the Father. And if you remember the story in Matthew 17, Jesus was transformed. He was transfigured into the glory of God. It says that his face shone with the glory of God. His clothing, his whole being was, was alight, was, was emblazoned with the glory of God. That's the word transformed. That's the kind of spiritual transformation that we're using. That's, that's the word that Paul uses right here to say, this is what God wants to do in your life. He wants to bring his light. He wants to bring his glory. He wants to bring all that he is, he is and, and instill it in your life and transform your heart and set you on a new path. Again, the arena for this is, a work, is, is, is God's work in our mind, transformed by the renewal of your mind. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. You see, taking every thought captive is not a matter of, of us deciding for ourselves what's good or what's from God. Transforming our minds begin with, begins with taking in God's word. That's, that's, that's the start of the journey, is taking in God's word. That's, that's why I mentioned earlier, I encourage you to memorize these passages of the scriptures, to put it in your head and let it seep down into your heart. Read it, memorize it, wrestle with it, pray it through. Taking every thought captive also, also includes the, the idea of getting in the way of good teaching. Hopefully that's here. 
That's our goal. That's our passion. That's our desire to weave the gospel into everything that we do, not just what I say from the front, but every Sunday school class, every youth gathering, every men's and women's gathering, everything that we do, we want it to be about teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whether it's small groups or your personal study or your reading, we encourage you to get in the way of good teaching of God's word. That's where transformation takes place. Transformation also takes place in, this, in, the, idea, in, the, in the strong sense of community, surrounding ourselves with other believers who share a passion for God's word, who share a passion for God's truth, and are willing to help me understand God's truth, who are willing to correct me in my misunderstanding of God's truth, to join with me in studying God's word and discovering it together for ourselves. We need to be in a community of believers. And there's another aspect to this renewal of the mind. You see, part of this transformation includes encountering questions, encountering circumstances, encountering arguments with others that we just can't answer. As I think through my journey, my spiritual journey, much of my personal growth has come because I've come up against something that I just can't answer. Somebody, even a skeptic, will ask a question. And I say, you know, I don't, I don't know. But as long as our response is, I'm going to go see what God says about it, then we're in continually learning and continually uh, uh, growing in Christ together because we're coming up against something we don't know and we're saying, God, you've got to show me. And I know there's been times in my life when, when, when I didn't understand something. I remember reading Romans through back early, early days of my Christian life, reading Romans through. I read it. I sat in a deer stand. I didn't shoot any deer that weekend, but I read Romans through about 10 times. And I didn't understand it. I didn't understand it. And I remember begging God to give me these truths. And over time, he did. He reveals himself. He reveals his word. He reveals his truth to us. Because when we come up against something, we say, God, you've got to show me your way. You've got to show me your way. The Colson Center is starting a library of short videos entitled, What Would You Say? Just for this very idea. What would you say if somebody asked you this question or came at you with this argument? What would you say? And their intention as well as ours is to equip believers to understand the gospel in its fullness and being able to, 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 to witness that wherever we are. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So what do we do with this? The whole process is wrapped up with the idea of testing and discerning. Listen to what he says. Transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul challenges us to test God's word, to test his truth, to put it into practice, to, to test his leading, to test his faithfulness and his goodness Say, God, I'll go here. I, I don't understand why you're taking me here, but I, I sense that you're leading me here. I'll go. God, I don't understand this particular truth, but I will, I'll, I'll, I'll take it in, and I'll apply it to this situation. I'll apply it to these questions. I'll apply it to this relationship, even though I don't fully understand the truth, but I understand what you're saying, and I'll go there with you. Test him. See if he's not faithful. See if he's not good. 
See if, he's, if his ways are not perfect in everything that you see and experience. Go ahead. Jump in and try it out. Step out in faith and see if God's truth isn't reliable. If God's truth isn't life-giving. And if it isn't trustworthy of our faith. See, as we do that, we'll be able to tell the difference between the way and wisdom of the world and the truth of God. We'll be able to see God's faithfulness and grow in him. That's transformation. In the coming weeks, we'll, we'll, we'll dive deeper into God's word and, God's, and worship and prayer, and we'll get more practical on these things and how this transformation works in those particular areas. But today, that's the way we see the big picture of God's transformation. Sandy and I were, were talking last night, and we're having lots of fun with the marriage class and uh, lots of joking about it between Sandy and I. Probably the, the biggest, the most amusing thing And the most profound thing is the fact that he took two kids and put them on a road towards himself. If you'd have told us that day on the farm 41 years ago that we would be up at a church in Minneapolis teaching a class on marriage, the whole world, not just me, the whole world would have laughed at you. I was busy being cool. I was busy conforming to the world. Living one way when I went to church and living quite another way when I went someplace else. You see, the beauty of this transformation is when you can look back a week, a year, 10 years, 40 years, and you can look back and say, God has done something amazing. And it's not just this or that, it's, it's my anger, it's the purity of my mouth, it's the purity of my thoughts, it's my habits, it's the way I treat my wife, it's, it's everything. God, you brought, it, you brought me from that place which now that I look at it, was ungodly beyond measure. And you grabbed a hold of my life, and you brought me on this journey, and there have been, there've been lots of obstacles, lots of opportunities to test God, and to see if he's faithful, to test his truth, to see if his word is faithful. Lots of opportunities, and I can look back 40-some years later and say God is good. God is faithful. God is perfect. And so now when, when we come up against something, now I don't want you to think that I can't complain because I'm quite capable of complaining and, and, and wondering why God's leading me this way or that way. But I have this confidence. He has always led me. He has always revealed his truth to me. And though I don't understand it today, he is busy doing that in my life today. And so I can see to the other side. And I wish I could explain to someone who's, who hasn't yet come to Christ a, a pre-Christian, if you will. I wish I could explain to somebody, you don't want to let go of your life today. You want to grab a hold of it and you want to hold on tight 
You don't understand the words of Paul that says, do not be conformed to this world. You don't understand that today because, because this habit is too, it's too comfortable. It's, I can't get away from this I, because this, this, this lifestyle is, is too much fun. I don't want to give it up. And I'd rather go to hell and have a party than I would to go to heaven and just, just be holier than thou. If I could shake somebody, if I could, excuse me, if I could just choke somebody and say, if you only knew the transforming power of Christ, and you would say, as the Apostle Paul did, everything that I look back on in my life, everything that I succeeded with, everything that I dealt with, everything that I thought was good and great and that I boasted about, everything is all garbage compared to knowing Christ. It's all garbage. It's because of the transforming power of Jesus. And so Paul comes along and he looks at this gospel truth and he says, what? Get up on the altar and let him begin his work in you. So as we present ourselves as living sacrifices and train our minds in the way of the Lord, I believe that we will stand in wonder of who God is. We will stand in awe. We will be speechless when we consider what God has done in our lives. What seemed like an insurmountable step of faith to me in the moment, on the other side of it, seems like a no-brainer. The other thing that happens when we allow ourselves to be living sacrifices and to train our minds in the ways of the Lord is that we grow in our understanding and our experience of God. I now know that this is the way God operates. I now know that this is his truth. I now know that this is the depth of his love. I now know that I'll never get to the full depth of his love, but he has put me in the deep end of the pool. One of the things that happens when we let ourselves be transformed is we, we let him sink into our hearts. And then finally, we discover his will. You know, we all say that God's will is really complicated, but the scripture tells us very clearly, know the will of God. How do you do that? You do it by understanding his word, and by jumping in, or by jumping up onto the altar and letting him work it out in your life. I'm going to call the worship team forward, and I'm going to pray for the offering this morning. Let's pray.